Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, this is Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And speaking of books, I have two of my own books coming out this spring and summer. Princess Charming is a picture book, which debuts on April 19th, and Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Hillary Jordan and Cheryl Lulian Tan are co-editors of Anonymous Sex. Hillary Jordan is the author of the novels Mudbound, which, by the way, was a Netflix show, which my brother ended up producing, and When She Woke. Mudbound was an international bestseller that won multiple awards and was adapted into a critically acclaimed Netflix film that earned four Academy Award nominations. Hillary is also a screenwriter, essayist, and poet whose work has been published in the New York Times, McSweeney's, and Outside Magazine, among others. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. Cheryl Luthien Tan is author of the international bestsellers Sarong Party Girls and A Tiger in the Kitchen, a memoir of food and family. She is also the editor of the fiction anthology Singapore Noir. Cheryl was a staff writer at the Wall Street Journal, InStyle, and the Baltimore Sun. And her stories and reviews have also appeared in the New York Times, the Times Literary Supplement, the Paris Review, the Washington Post, and Bon Appetit, among others. Born and raised in Singapore, she lives in New York City. And actually, her partner owns and runs a restaurant on the Upper West Side. So after you listen to this podcast, when I say I'm going to stop by the restaurant, I actually did. I went there that very night, or maybe it was the next night, and got to know her and her partner and all of their friends. And we've been back a few times, and it was super fun. And I just think she's awesome. I'm very excited today. I have two authors, Hillary Jordan and Cheryl Lulian-Tien. Did I say that right? Lulian-Tien? Anyway, Anonymous Sex, amazing anthology with a super unique concept, which I am just in love with. It's so cool. Will both of you introduce yourselves and then please explain how this project came to be? Cheryl? Well, I am, well, I'm, this is Cheryl and I am originally from Singapore. I have written fiction and nonfiction. My first book was A Tiger in the Kitchen. It was a food memoir about going back to Singapore to discover the food of my grandmothers. And my, uh, and then my novel was called Sarong Party Girls, which was about what it's like being a modern woman in Asia. And both were international bestsellers. And now we have anonymous sex. 
<laughs> Congratulations. And I'm Hillary Jordan. And um, my first novel, Mudbound, was the winner of the Bellwether Prize for socially engaged fiction. And it was made into a movie that did pretty well. It got four Academy Award nominations. Oh my gosh. My brother produced that movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Which brother? His name is Teddy Shoresman. He's from Black Bear okay. Pictures. I, I met Teddy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Too funny. How I, met I, him, I met him at the shoot, actually, and he gave me a lift back to New Orleans. Oh, so, there you go. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so that was really exciting. And my second novel is called When She Woke, and it's a dystopian novel that's sort of coming true. And, um, <laughs> I'm, also, and I'm also a screenwriter. So yeah. And this project started because Cheryl and I love um, food and we also love uh, erotica. So when we were introduced many years ago by Julia Glass, who was our very first contributor who signed up for this wonderful project, you know, we discovered we had these shared interests. And over dinner one night, we were just talking about, you know, why isn't there more really great erotica like D.H. Lawrence and Anais Nin? And we thought, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if we made a book like that? And we did it with some of the very best writers in the world, all writing at the top of their game. And then it was a matter of, okay, well, how do we get these amazing people like Louise Erdrich, you know, Paul Theroux to sign on to this project? And we thought, well, what if we just list their names, but all the stories are anonymous. So you have to guess who wrote what. And uh, we would call this project of ours Anonymous Sex. And even though we came up with this idea about seven or eight years ago, time passed. Hillary would say, hey, let's do that project now. But I would be busy working on a book or I'd be like, hey, I'm free now. And she'd be working on something. So nothing. The stars never really quite aligned until the pandemic happened. And suddenly it was, you know, summer of 2020. We were all in lockdown and I was at home in Singapore, my, my, my childhood bedroom in my mom's home in this strict lockdown for two months. And I was on a FaceTime call with Hillary, who was then in her own isolation in Maine. And we were like, why don't we do it now? We really have the time now. <laughs> and, you know, we, we thought if there were any ever a time that the world needed to be reminded of intimacy and sex at a time when you couldn't even hug your own friends, couldn't see them, this would be it. And so we thought, okay, well, let's see what happens. And so we, we invited Julia Glass. She was the first ask. And she was an immediate yes. I called her on FaceTime from Singapore. And from then on, we just we just made a wish list. We, we, we just dreamt big. And we managed to get so many of the names that that we had on that list. And we, we were so amazed. And I think it was partly because it was a time when people were really seeking connection. And the, I'm just going to read the amazing contributors, if that's okay, for people who are not do not have the book in front of them. So your contributors include Robert Olin Butler, Catherine Chung, Trent Dalton, Heidi W. Duro, Tony April, Louise Erdick, Jamie Ford, Julia Glass, Peter Godwin, Hillary Jordan, Rebecca Mackay, she was on my podcast, Valerie Martin, Dina Nayari, Chigozi, Obioma, Tia Obrecht, Helen, Oyeyami, Mary Louise Parker, Victoria Radel, I'm sure I'm butchering all these names, Jason Reynolds, SJ Roseanne, Meredith Talisan, I did a um, IG Live with her, Cheryl Lulian Tin, Suvankam, Thamavangsa, Jeet, Thayil, Paul Thoreau, Luis Alberto, Uria, and Edmund White. How did, how did I do? <laughs> That's amazing. 
Thanks. That is quite a list of literary superstars. I mean, that's amazing. And by the way, Julia Glass, I loved the novel Three Junes. Same Julia Glass, right? And she has a new one coming out, Vigil Harbor, <gasps> on May 3rd. So you should have her on too. No way. Shoot. How did I not know that? Okay, I'm writing that down. I went a long time ago before I even had kids. I went to some sort of literary event for her at someone's home in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn Heights. And I didn't have kids. And everybody, the whole dinner was talking about their their kids and their schools and and St. Anne's and this and that. And I was sitting there being like, I don't understand. I have nothing to add. Like, I, I want to hear about the book and all this stuff. And now that I'm a mom, I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, it was just a bunch of school moms with like a, a fabulous guest in there. I don't even know what I was doing there. Come to think of it. I have no idea. Maybe it was a pen event or something. But anyway, I was such a huge fan. I went and met her and it was so cool. And it's one of my favorites. And now it's like all coming full circle. Here you are. Okay. So now I'll have to have her on. Amazing. And she is the nicest person and her story in the collection is wonderful, but we can't tell you which one it is. Of course. Have you revealed who wrote what to anyone on the planet? We're not allowed to. Um, We're all contractually bound to keep it secret for a year and a half after publication, what our story is. And in fact, there are a handful of people who know our editor, Cara Watson knows but she actually read the story blind, all the stories blind. She wanted to sort of come to it the way a reader would. And she was really confident that she would be able to guess, you know, a lot of the names because she's obviously very familiar with many of these authors. And she got two out of 27, right? So, but other than Cara and our editor in the UK and like the payroll person who cut the check, <laughs> there, there's almost nobody who knows any of the names, so... How does it feel for you guys to walk around with a big secret like that? I have a really hard time keeping secrets. They kind well, of weighs on me. I don't know about <laughs> you, but I have like an armed personnel now following me around in case, in case I get kidnapped and interrogated. But it's, it's interesting because uh, some of our writers say, you know, obviously, I mean, we're, you know, so, so we're not hiding behind, you know, the secrecy and, or anonymity, but, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's this kind of fun literary parlor game. And some of our some of the contributors say that they, they never want to reveal it just because, you know, it's kind of fun to be in this bubble of, you know, just sort of secrecy and not having people know. What happens after a year and a half? Then you're well, going to tell everybody? The people's right to publish it in an anthology reverts to them. Okay. But there's not going to be any sort of big announcement. And personally, I'm going to take it to the grave. And I hope a lot of the other writers follow suit because the more that are identified, the easier it gets to identify the remaining people. So I think I think most of our writers have are approaching it in the, you know, this sense of, you know, we're in this together and and it's a secret. Wow. Well, in the introduction, when you described why you did the project and all that, you had something that was super interesting about sort of love and sex in the pandemic that I thought, which sort of echoes what you were just saying now, but, well, I loved this last part of it too, but this is not what I was talking about, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. In thinking about how to describe the collection, we kept coming back to the last line of Altitude Sickness, the fourth story in the anthology. She grabbed the man's hand and kissed him without shame as the plane began to tilt. While the world has certainly been more atilt than usual recently, the truth is it's always tilting in ways large and small for each one of us. Sex can be a grounding force in that day-to-day pitch. It can also be part of the upheaval. Either way, it's a connection many of us both want and need, a way to reach across the divide and know that we aren't alone, which is what inspired us to take the sleep together. We hope you enjoy every eloquent, provocative, delicious word. I love that. I love that. I mean, people don't often talk about it that way, that it's a unifying, that it's something that we have to hold on to. I had uh, an anthology that I worked on at the same time called Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology, which 
I originally just like put essays out on my website because it was supposed to be another project. It doesn't matter. Anyway, one of the essays was by Claire Gibson, who's an author, and it was about like her sex life with her husband and how he was such a germaphobe and how that affected their relationship. But how the the part of it that really stayed with me is just they're sort of glomming onto each other and how those moments, those intimate physical moments stopped time in a way and stopped all of the the panic and the uncertainty and everything and just got them back in the moment so much. And, you know, so the, the power of that, which of course is like throughout the story, although they have lots of very salacious things in here, <laughs> but that theme, it is so important. And that's one of these joking things why I have moms no time to have sex is like one of the the things in my uh, anthology because, you know, without those moments of reconnection to the people you love, I mean, without it, I mean, without it, there might not be people. I mean, now we have advanced science. It's true. We have, we have a lot of different kinds of sex in there. I mean, we have, we have, you know, sex with ghosts, holographic sex. We have, you know, bad sex, bondage sex, good sex, but we have a lot of we have a lot of good married sex too. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the book involves a, a teacher who's she's in school and she she you know catches her daughter having sex in the in the supply closet, and then and then she comes home and she's just really frazzled and then you know she's just sort of like oh I have all this grating and then her husband is in the kitchen holding a piece of cheese and he's like let's go and you know, you, if you want to read the story, you have to buy the book, but it's this <laughs> moment between just sort of this like really happy married couple. And it's like this stress point in her life that suddenly just gets lifted. <laughs> also in what was the name of this, this one history lesson of, about the, con- the two people at the conference where Michael, I think his name's Michael was threatening to reveal all these videos of the two of them when both of them are basically cheating on their partners, some sanctioned, some not, and then revealing on Twitter what, uh, this very intimate moment and then having to go back to the conference. I mean, this is like my worst <laughs> nightmare. Basically, I can't even think of anything more terrifying than having your most intimate and have, you know, the scene where she's like pulling off her necklace, like, oh no, maybe the necklace is going to give it away. Anyway, what did you guys think when you, like when you got that story, for instance, how did it happen? Did they send it to you in like Google Docs or you got it on email? Did you read it on your computer and were you just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then how much editing went into it? What was that all like? That was actually a, a joy to get. Actually, all of them were because when we commissioned this, we invited people. Uh, so we did not ask for blind. We, we didn't ask for people to submit blindly. We invited people specifically, and we said we we want a sex story between one thousand words and eight thousand words. That's all we told them. So we were kind of worried when it got close to deadline. What if we get 25 stories about the same kind of sex? What if we get 25 stories about, you know, sex in a park in New York? <laughs> so, but then, you know, we, we invited such a variety of writers. They, they've been finalists for the Booker Prize. They've won the Pulitzer Prize. They've won the National Book Award. You know, we have a, a children's author who won the Carnegie Medal in, in the UK. So, you know, obviously we ended up getting a huge range. But, you know, when we got that story, it was, we, we were like, wow, we were blown away by all of them. But that one, we were like, okay, this is really steamy. It's really hot. And yeah. um, it, it really is. I felt like, you know, I, I know this writer, I can't reveal who it is. And I was just like, wow, this is really something like nothing I've ever read from this person before. And it was, it made us, made me feel really happy because it, it, it was exactly what we wanted to do. We wanted to kind of open the door to maybe ask people to go down a road with us that perhaps they'd never gone before. And ourselves included, Hillary and I both have a story in it. Well, but you'll never say what yours is either. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Okay, you guys are good. You're really good. (laughs) Okay, we can't 
bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe. But we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose 100 times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life 360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life 360. Visit life360.com or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. Tell me for a second about the cover. So the cover for people listening is bright red, and there is one strawberry, one plump, delicious-looking strawberry right in the middle with its little green leaves at the top. Tell me about that, how much input you had, what you wanted it to look like, and how that came to be. Well, that is one very wicked-looking strawberry for those of you who haven't seen the cover of the book. I will hold it up for it. Suggests <laughs> uh, quite a lot of different things. We think we really like that it it was suggestive in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. And there were co- there was one other cover that they showed us, which was actually two lemons. Mm. Um, but we loved our wicked strawberry because it just it's fun, you know. And that's also part of what this project was. In addition to sort of intimacy and connection, we wanted it to be fun. I mean, we were all all the writers craving something fun during that time. I mean, this was before vaccines, you know, when we started conceiving this and when people were writing these stories and, you know, sex is fun and it, it really helped. It helped me get back into writing. I mean, I was pretty paralyzed the first few months of the pandemic and I was by my, I'm single. So I was by myself for a long time. And, you know, Cheryl and I have talked a lot about how this project really helped get us through. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, I hadn't wr- written a word of fiction until I began my story. And so it was it was just it was a fun project, you know, and it was just delightful. And we love that the American cover reflects that. And the UK cover uh, yeah. is very different. Ooh, look at that. I know. So it's it's kind of this. Uh, I know a friend the of mine. Shark. Shark. If you, I know, like he said, I tried to scan the, the this QR code and Tinder popped up. <laughs> it does not, but I like how wow. you turn it around. You keep seeing different things. That's cool. Yeah, but so it's so I love that both. We have two wonderful covers, and the strawberry. What I love about it is it's very it's very inclusive. It's very broad because it could be thighs, it could be behind, it could be the front. You know, it yep. could be anything really. So it's it's very inclusive. Yes. 
Very inclusive. (laughs) Interesting. Never eat a strawberry the same way again. (laughs) Tell me, though, about both of your backgrounds a little more not related to this book and how, like, what your projects are now that you're working on not related to this, but screenwriting or if you're doing another book yourself and and all that. And now I have to go back and, and I really want to read your memoir. I love food-related memoirs and all that. I have to go back. I will do that. And I'm excited too. And just really excited about Mudbound and all the rest. So just tell me more about your careers and how basically how you became writers. Do you want to go first? Sure. I actually started out as an advertising copywriter. So I spent, you know, 20 years writing disposable sentences. I mean, I did some good ads, but you know, and I was in my early to mid-30s and I was living in Texas and I was married to the wrong person. And I just woke up one day and I was working 60 hour weeks and making a lot of money. And I just woke up one day and I just said, this can't be my life, you know, because it just didn't feel worthy of how I wanted to spend my time. So I went back to school. I went to Columbia and got my MFA and started Mudbound. I actually started both of my novels in the same workshop, the January of the second workshop I took. And I didn't know what to do with the other one. And I wrote Mudbound, which was very loosely, very loosely based on family stories of my of my grandparents' farm. Wow. They lived after World War II. And the cast of characters is actually pretty similar in terms of the makeup there. You know, there's a, a couple with two young daughters, a crotchety, you know, father-in-law and this handsome soldier who comes home from the war a little bit traumatized. So that much is true. But, you know, nobody killed my great-grandfather although I think my grandmother might've liked to, Um, (laughs) and, you know, just other things that happened. So, so that book was my first novel and it really, it just did so well. And it, it it won, you know, it won an award and sort of changed everything. And then while that was happening, I I wrote the second one. And then when mud and years passed, obviously, and when Mudbound got made into a film, I sort of caught the screenwriting bug. So I actually have done an adaptation of When She Woke, which is now searching for a director, if you know anybody. And I'm about to embark on another screenwriting project about the Texas prison rodeo. Mm. And I'm I'm also working on a third novel. So quite, quite busy these days. Wow. How do you go back to the intensity of like into the characters' lives when you're doing so many, like, it, it It feels like novel writing takes a certain mental headspace. Like, it's not the same as, you know, an essay. I mean, not that that doesn't. Yeah. But how, like, read, how, right? How do you go back and forth? I read somewhere once that Philip Roth spent most of his time in it, towards the end in his house in Connecticut because, when, when he was writing anyway, because he said he, he needed to be in touch with his characters every day. And it was kind of hard mm. to do that in New York because you're you get distracted, you know, you go to Zabar's and it's exciting. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, so I, I can kind of see that, you know, I, Residencies I, help a lot, artist residencies. And Cheryl and I both have done, done those. And I'm actually going back to one that we have in common, uh, Yaddo, in yeah. a few weeks for a month. So you get a month where it's just... Yeah. And, that, and that helps a great deal. I went to the Yado Benefit right before the pandemic where they were reading all sorts of letters by the most iconic, amazing authors who had been there in the past. And not just authors, but all sorts of just just so mm-hmm. many amazing, notable people and 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 what Yado had meant to them. It was, it was crazy. It was like sitting through a history 
thing. Yeah. It was just so cool. Yaddo, I can't, I really would love to go at some point just to like take a little tour or something. Anyway. Yeah. Well, Yaddo was a re- huge uh, turning point for me. I mean, for, for me, I, you know, I always knew I wanted to write books. I grew up in Singapore in a very traditional Chinese family. And so when I said I wanted to write books when I was five or six, because I've been reading Enid Blyton and Judy Bloom, and I just, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I wanted to write things like that, that could take people somewhere else. And um, my parents were like, well, people who write, how do you make money doing that? Like, no, you're going to be a lawyer. And so I said, well, okay, well, what if I figure out how to make money with writing? And so I was like, I'm going to become a journalist. They have regular paychecks. So I went to journalism school, loved it, worked for the Baltimore Sun, went to InStyle Magazine. I was a fashion editor there. And then the Wall Street Journal, I covered fashion. And I had been covering fashion for like 10 years and and living in the US. My family's all in Singapore. And I was starting to really miss eating food of my like family. And especially, I think it was particularly acute because I was surrounded by people in an industry in fashion where they were actively avoiding food and eating. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden I started really craving like my grandmother's food and my mom's food. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to take a break and go home and like learn how to cook with my aunties for like a weekend. And so I did that and I wrote an essay and a, an editor called me and said, let's turn from Penguin called and said, let's turn this into a book. And so that's literally how like everything started. And I remember I got the book contract. I had this book to write. I didn't know how to write it. I remember saying, if you ask me to write a 1500 word story in like an hour, I can do it hands down. But you ask me to write a 90,000 word book in a mm-hmm. year, I have no idea where to start. And so going to Yado really, really helped me because it kind of cleared my head. It kind of showed me how to be an artist because I was around other writers. I saw how disciplined they were and how they worked. And that really, that really helped me. That's how I wrote. I was actually at Yado for seven weeks and I wrote a tiger wow. in the kitchen. My first book was a food memoir at Yado. And then well, and then before I was I was done with that, I was sort of I started writing what would become my first novel, Sarong Party Girls, which is also set in Singapore. And it's about young women in Singapore and you know, just how difficult it can be to be a woman in modern but patriarchal Southeast Asia. Wow. So amazing. You two are so accomplished and this is so inspiring. What a story. Amazing. And what how about you? What else is coming up for you? Well, I'm working on my next novel right now. So uh, apart from Anonymous Sex, all my books have been set in Singapore and the next one is too. So I, I, I'm i not saying very much about it, but it's, okay. it's, all right. it's got some sex in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> And in the meantime, you help your boyfriend with his restaurant. <laughs> well, I write that I write there every day. So if you come to Manny's Bistro at 225 Columbus on the Upper West Side, I am literally at the little table by the door. But you know, if I if I look busy, if I'm typing and I have my earbuds in, don't talk to me. Uh, but if I don't have my earbuds in, it's okay to talk to me. But that's where I work on my book these days because you know the 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 tea is free flowing, and anytime I'm hungry, the kitchen is right downstairs. That's so neat. I'm not even kidding. I'm probably I'm gonna just like come and have dinner there tonight or something. You'll be surprised. Are you there at night too, or just during the day? I'm open there at night too. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Cheryl is the hostess, but the mostest. She's the most social person. It's just like the perfect thing for her. I love it. Oh my gosh, that's always like been a dream that you could like have a restaurant and just like hang out there and greet everybody and (laughs) very neat. Okay, from both of you, what advice do you have for aspiring authors? My first piece of advice would be to read a lot of great books because I feel like reading authors, you know, Judy Bloom, Roald Dahl as a child and, you know, right on up to Jane Austen and Kazuo Shiguro to name two of my favorites. I don't see how you can become a writer without doing a lot of reading. I mean, just and reading good stuff, mm-hmm. you know, too. So that's that's kind of my number one piece of advice. And um, the second thing that I always tell people is, to read your stuff out loud because your ear will pick up 
wrongnesses that your eye will not catch on the page. So those are my two big ones. I, I would second the uh, both of those. You know, definitely read a lot. I read a lot as a kid. My family had to pull their li- library cards to to get the maximum amount each week just for me. And also the the, re- the reading aloud thing, particularly because my my first book I write in Singapore, we speak a pa- kind of patois that's a mix of Chinese, English, and Malay. And so for me, I've always I, I sometimes write read aloud as I'm writing just just because I need to hear it. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, I think the main thing is. I just be listen, be a great observer of life. And I think that's why a lot of journalists make really good novelists, because that's what we have to do. We have to bring a scene to life on the page. And, you know, for me, like when I read a book and I'm like, something's not quite right. Like this character, it's it's because this person hasn't understood the character or doesn't understand the environment or doesn't understand the community that they're writing about. And they're just sort of inserting themselves into it or their, their beliefs into it. And so to me, I, I always enter a thing going, I don't understand this, what this world is. So I have to know everything. I have to know mm-hmm. what the wallpaper is what it smells like, you know, what this woman likes for breakfast, what's her favorite ice cream, you know, before I can really like, you know, what you see on the page has to be the tip of the iceberg because you have to really understand that world. You have to listen to your characters in order to actually bring them to life. Otherwise they're not going to, they're going to come across as false. And the other, the other thing I would say that off of what Cheryl just said is that I always start novels with a question you know, as opposed to an answer. I mean, the process of writing a book is, is, is a process of asking questions. What would it be like if you're this educated woman and, and with two little tiny children and your husband just moves you out into the middle of, you know, BF Mississippi, mm-hmm. and you don't even have running water. Like, what would that be like? So I feel like going into a book, as Cheryl said, with curiosity and, and not knowing and, and, being determined to know and to, to make discoveries allows your reader to do that eventually as well. And that, and that feels really exciting when, when it's really happy, when I'm sensing that in a novel that the author went through that, that's always really exciting to me. And Amazing. also if you, if you live anywhere with a public transportation system, that's one of my favorite places to get ideas for either images or or facial tics or whatever, or, or dialogue, because I always look, I'm always on the subway and I look at people who are like, you know, not looking around them or have their earbuds in, or they're talking to each other. And I go, you're missing out. And there's like grand pageant, at least pageantry of life around you. It's like, you know, like, listen, like, you know, you're going to hear dialogue. You're going to see people, you're going to see outfits and everything on the subway that, that you'll, you'll never see anywhere else. Like you wouldn't have to make it up. Just write it down. That's so true. There's a lot to be learned just from watching and listening paying attention, observing, secret weapon. (laughs) Maybe not for erotica, but I don't know. I'll just leave that floating out there. Now I want to go back and try to, now that I feel like I know you two a little bit, figure out which essays you wrote. But anyway, good luck. luck. Yeah, I probably will never be able to tell, which is probably good. I mean, whatever. Anyway, great to meet you. I hope to meet you both in real life since we're all in the city and I'm sorry you weren't here and I have to start booking in-person interviews again. And who knows, I'll probably just show up at the restaurant. Yeah, it's lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. 
check it out and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Hello.